Hey, you big boys. Now, you see, I thought I would go for something a little bit less formal this time. If John Inman had used that in Odd Man Out, no, it still wouldn't have worked. I don't know what I'm talking about. Now, what about the Paul Raymond version, Take a French Letter, Mr. Jones? <laughs> we need to move on, really, don't we, from last time? <laughs> well, we need to look just, ahead. We're just recapping for anybody who, who missed out. Oh, by the way, I'm Mooncat, and you're Show, and this is the Sitcom Club. Hello. I'm right in saying that you've been watching Take a Letter, Mr. Jones, uh, every night for the last three months. No, because that would just mean cycling through it. But I did re-watch episode one last week. You watched episode one, but you watched it at 28% of its normal speed to make it last longer. 28 times faster for the mad Italian maid. <laughs> we'll come to that. We will actually look at Take a Letter to Mr. Jones at some point, And I will tell you why two of the characters need to be removed. We have been taking a little break from the sitcoms recently, haven't we? Because our attention has been diverted to some interesting archive material to be found on the tube concerning one of Britain's top game shows. But of course, it's not Britain's top game show, is it? Because it's actually Spanish. Yes, we've been watching episodes of Uno, Dos, Tres, Respondo Otra Vez. And that was created by whom? Narisco Ibanez Serrador, I think. I'm not sure. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Well, I was going to say that's easy for you to say, but the Spanish version of 3-2-1 is actually about three weeks long in comparison to our one hour. Yes. And it's multifaceted. Lots of extra stuff happening. I mean, the first series of 3 one does try to follow it reasonably closely by having the gentle sex, spelt S-E-C-S, because they're secretaries. They're wearing big glasses to let you know that they're secretaries. And then you've got doggy... Brown. Okay. Chris Emmett and somebody else. Debbie Arnold. But they're just cracking lame jokes. In the Spanish version, it's a bunch of misers in frock coats and top hats and long straggly beards. Why are we um, talking about this? Well, because... No, are, we, are we back to this whole audible idea that we don't, <laughs> we don't get to the point of the sitcom club until... 15 minutes in. Well, no, what it is, it's a bit retro, actually. We're not doing the Audible business anymore. This is the premiere of the Sitcom Club on premium rate phone line. So I'm trying to sort of stretch it out because it's charged at £1.50 per minute, but you don't just want to give everybody, you know, all the sort of wares in the first couple of minutes. You know, just want to stretch it a bit. Well, have we got any business outstanding from previous? Well, business outstanding. Let's take a look at Twitter. But thank you very much for feedback from the Odd Man Out episode. We've had a couple of bits and pieces in, one from Laps Cat, uh, who says, you'll reach the end thinking, Vince Powell, if born 400 years ago... Hang on, I'm going to say that again, because that's not... Is that a 3 two, one clue? It does, it sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. I know, I know what he's getting at, so I'm, I'm going I'm to do that again. Well, paraphrase then. Laps Cat says, Vince Powell, if born 400 years ago, would have been writing soap scripts for Shakespeare. Perfectly true. Birdie? in New Zealand, says that she enjoyed hearing about the television painting syndrome that you commented on. It's a real thing. Keep an eye open. And she also says for a future episode we could look at sitcom transportation. I'm not forgetting till death is due part. Did that go to Australia? Yes, it did. In Sickness and Health, Alf was down under for a wee while. Yes, I definitely intend to do an episode at some point about sitcoms down under because there are plenty of those uh, and I've been watching most of them over the last few weeks to the point where you've been you know sort of nudging me saying have I been watching 
the topic in question this week and I've been replying, well, no, actually, because I've been watching that fella of Get Smart doing Tripper's Day in Canada. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, follow dear follow down under and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I was, I was getting easily distracted. But a couple of other bits and pieces that we should touch on sitcom club business which of course is going to be old news by the time you actually hear this but just in case you're not aware of these couple of bits of news items one is that in the afternoons on bbc2 in the uk you can now catch up with both are you being served and a low low being run from the very beginning and there are actually some very very talented chaps who have put together some very nice original bbc2 type identification to play before and after the shows to make it all sort of look nice and retro and 1980s they've done a lovely job it looks really really nice if you have a wee look on youtube if you're outside the uk you'll be able to see it just search for bbc2 and uh, you'll find the, the ideas on there last week we were discussing what happened next with granville in open all hours we should also reiterate that open all hours is returning this christmas it's a one-off 30 minute episode called still open all hours a press release from the beep says that linda barron and maggie oliver and shaw will return as nurse gladys emmanuel and mavis respectively obviously it'll be roy clark who'll be behind the episode and of course it concerns granville now running arkwright store we don't yet know if it's still called arkwright store louis bath expert on everything we like has said on twitter what are the chances that Roy Clark went in saying, look, I've got a new show for you. And they went, oh, bring back one of your old ones. But my wife is really looking forward to it. I don't think she's ever seen a British sitcom revival other than whatever happened to the Likely Lads. You know, I actually... So when I told her, she went, oh, cool, I'm really looking forward to that. And I thought, you, you've never seen Doctor at the Top. Well, I was going to say, well, you and I had a synchronised viewing of Doctor at the Top a few weeks back. And that was oh, interesting. It wasn't bad. It wasn't funny. Now, here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to get too much into this topic just now, because, like I say, we will actually do a show on this uh, before the end of the year. But a sort of mini theory about why these revivals quite often are not a success is that we all like to wallow in nostalgia from time to time. And part of the fun of wallowing in nostalgia is that you're remembering people and places and so on, fun times of the past. Well, I mean, guys um, like you and me like to wallow in nostalgia between waking up and going to sleep. This is true. <laughs> but um, take, for example, the Liverbirds. Your two main characters, by and large, have got, I wouldn't say trivial problems by any means, but they've got a fairly happy lifestyle and... They're, they're, they're young and they're energetic and so on and it's all very much embracing the, the, the era, 1970s new permissive society and, and all these opportunities and embracing the, the city and so on and then to suddenly land in 1996 with a crash you, you remember the live reporters being in the 1970s because that's when they were on the screen and now suddenly here they are in the real world and they're 25 years older and they, they have problems associated with middle age and so on exactly the same goes for doctor at the top where you're remembering i mean you said to me the other week that you sort of imagined the original doctor series as just being robin nedwell and jeffrey davis running around corridors setting off fire extinguishers <laughs> whereas doctor at the top 20 years later no dialogue well exactly yes but <laughs> here... <laughs> 25 minutes 
for 161 episodes. They're worrying about mortgage payments and what the boss will think of this and, and they've got all these, you know, social etiquette sort of problems to deal with and all that. It's, 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 this is actually what might work to the advantage of Open All Hours because Roy Clark writing Granville as a cranky old man wasting away in a backwater town, that works. Roy Clark writing a cranky old man in a small town, pfft, he does that in his sleep. This could actually work. It sort of reminds me of Jumping to a different genre entirely, 1991, Queen came back with a single called Innuendo, and somebody complained, saying, oh, this is just Led Zeppelin with some camp added. Yes! No wonder it was Queen's second UK number one. <laughs> that's, that's what they're there for. <laughs> well, we will come back to this topic in a few weeks' time, because we will definitely have a revival themed sitcom club ahead of the new open all hours for sure but yes on to the matter in hand and this week it is ever increasing circles ocho if you wouldn't mind doing the honors if you could give us a, a little scene setter for the show no i don't think i could you know how my mind works <laughs> now you ask me to do that i can't escape from my idea which is complete media studies nonsense and I am not at all suggesting that this is anything that anybody at all had in mind but I can't escape this idea that it's a metafictional setup. It's sitcom land. Martin Bryce is a bumbling uptight middle class suburban loony living around other middle class suburban oddities like Howard and Hilda, and even some of the other characters we see, like Tommy Cooper and Lawrence Treadwell. And his wife is from our universe. <laughs> Anne Bryce is recognisably normal. And the way Penelope Wilton acts it, you could remove that performance and put it in a play for today, and she wouldn't really have to change. And somebody moves in next door. So we've got Richard Pryor's. Martin Bryce, and he's married to Penelope Walton, Anne Bryce. And who is it moves in next door? Peter Egan, playing Paul Ryman. And he's just the golden boy. And this is where the tension kind of comes in. Birdie said once on Twitter that she thought Paul was mean to Martin. I don't think he is. We'll, we'll, we'll come on to that in a second, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a potentially controversial statement okay. uh, to, to kick things off. But we should also uh, acknowledge as well that on one side of Martin and Anne's house is Paul Ryman. On the other side, we've got Howard and Hilda Hughes. Stanley I don't Lever think they're, don't, they're not next Ewan. door. I don't think they're next door. Are they not? No. Did you not say once about them going out the back way and climbing over the fence? They're definitely in the same neighbourhood. But I don't think they live directly next door. Otherwise, oh, it'd be a very different show. Oh, I see. Okay, my apologies. Because yeah, so Paul is same... in and out of Howard and Hilda's as much as he's in and out of Martin's. Well, for all we know, maybe he is. We have to stick to the text. Well, no, we don't. <laughs> what am I talking about? There'd be no point. Anyway. We should also point out as well, spoiler alert, all of a sudden we're going to be talking about individual episodes, but only from series one and two uh, on this occasion. Which is really where a lot of the juicy stuff happens. Oh, oh, thanks for the spoiler. I haven't even seen bloody series three and four yet. And I'm just going to, well, I mean... It like an old bicycle uh, tyre. No, it, it does expand <laughs> a bit. But series one and two is the big 
setup, the one that really explores the characters. Now, there's still stuff that pays off in series three. Okay. Well, to give a little bit of so a little bit of scene setting, I, I think you mentioned it right there, but it's Bob Larmy and John Esmond, and the last show of theirs that we talked about was Mulberry, wasn't it? Mm. How would you yourself describe Martin Bryce? He's uptight. He's obsessive. He's pompous. He's something of a little Englander. He's a whole bunch of suburban bourgeois neuroses, all bundled up. But he's not a bad guy. And if we can, if we can bring Birdie into this again, she mentioned that we should compare ever-decreasing circles with butterflies. I think there's a colossal difference between Martin Bryce and Ben Parkinson. Is that his name? Jeffrey Palmer's character in Butterflies. Martin is passionate. Martin is very passionate and cares deeply about a large number of things and also cares deeply about his wife. Okay, well, I'll put cards on the table straight away. Cards um, this time. I'm, I'm cards, happy... right? Yes, cards. Nothing else. <laughs> I'm going to be rounding up the Munch Bunch again. To... That's, a, that's a reference to a previous episode, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't get that reference, delve into the iTunes archive <laughs> for the uh, the Hill 2 unseen world of Last of Summer Wayne. But anyway, I might as well be upfront about this right from the word go. I do not like Martin Price. I don't like him at all. I don't think that he is a particularly nice guy. I think that he is someone who is very controlling and not just to the point of where, for example, he's got everybody sort of running around all shaking the head because of his behaviour, but there are certain things that he does, and we'll touch on them when we're talking about individual episodes, there are certain things that he does and say certain behaviour patterns that he displays, which I think are, I wouldn't go as far as to say sinister, but I think that they are, they are very mean-spirited, and altogether I think that they go into making a character who is a control freak, and I think that he treats Anne very badly. That's my view of him. That's her sort of disposition towards him. I don't necessarily think that that Paul is particularly mean to Martin. I think that sometimes, for his own amusement, he will wind him up, obviously, because he he knows what's going to make Martin tick, and he knows what's then going to press Martin's button and set him off and so on. And so, yeah, for his own amusement or for amusement fan or anybody else around him yeah of course he'll say things which are gonna start him off but i find paul quite actually quite a nice character i find him quite charming i take on board what one character who we'll come to later on in series two says about him as far as a personality defect of his own but i don't think that that's anywhere near as bad as martin's personality i think martin's a worse person than paul but i don't think he's necessarily a bad guy I think Paul and Martin have a similar character flaw. They're both a little bit blind to the effect they're having on other people. Paul should realise that when he winds Martin up, there's probably going to be a bit more of an effect than anybody else. To a certain extent, Martin's the author of his own misery because he can just release at any point. This is where Howard and Hilda are interesting characters and we need to describe them. Well, Howard and Hilda... Howard is, for the most part, he's very passive, he's very laid back, and they are an ideal couple, they're devoted to each other, and... They're the reason I've... you didn't like this show originally. Well, actually... Because that, I, they I, are I... capital S, sitcom neighbours. Yeah, and I actually, I think I'd said it when I mentioned it before, but it was really, really unfair of me to actually 
take that view. I once caught a glimpse of an episode, having never seen it before, saw Howard and Hilda in their matching sweaters and just thought, uh, typical daft sitcom couple. And that was it, just sort of dismissed it. Which and, they and, are. Uh, yeah. Well, yes, they are, but... They would um, fit right in in something like There's No Place Like Home. They would, but the more and more... The crucial difference is they're not in <laughs> There's No yeah, Place but Like the, the Home. More, the more that you see them, and they're not bland sitcom characters because they do have more facets to the, the, the character than you initially see. Hilda, for example, has a little bit of steel about her. She doesn't like being... Uh, She's ex-military. They mentioned a few times she was in the Wrens. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. And in fact, one of the one of the worst things Martin ever does is say to her, it's a wonder you didn't desert. And he has to back down from that immediately. Or I think Howard would have tied him into a knot. I mean, Howard also, in, in one episode in, in series two, really does get upset about the fact that he is... They actually you know, do. He, he's a doormat a, that, quite yeah, often. That actually, he he that allows is, people to step over him. That um, is the point where we get a little bit of depth into him without being too maudlin about it. It's one of those problems that afflicts certain shows these days. <laughs> you can't have depth <laughs> not character doing without Count Strong having yet. somebody standing around going, <laughs> oh, I'm so sad. But I think one of the interesting purposes Howard and Hilda serve is showing that Martin doesn't really have to be upset with Paul. If he just goes along, just chuckles when Paul cracks one of his frequently rather lame jokes. Just goes along with it. Just, oh, hi, Paul. Oh, that's Paul. Typical Paul, eh? Everything will be okay. Well, the, the more that I've seen of Howard and Hilda on the screen, the more I like them. And I know that they are very twee and quite boring, especially if you're listening to... If you ask him a time, he tells you how to make a watch. But Nevertheless, if that's the worst element of their personality, I think that you'd very much like to have them. Wait till we get to series three, actually. There is an episode where Paul is a better friend to Martin than Howard and Hilda. Okay, I'll be interested to see that. But before we start going to the individual episodes, I want to qualify what I'm saying there about Martin, because that might sound overly harsh, the way I've described him there, but I want to back this up with a couple of examples. The second episode of season one, for example, when Paul sort of engineers a situation where suddenly Martin has all of his workload taken off him. That displays a, a side of Martin's personality where he will always get his own way because of the way that he behaves. If he's not rushing around trying to organise everyone, then the fact that he is pouting and, and huffing and, and quite clearly immensely put out means that ultimately people have to capitulate to his want. And of course, before you know it, he's managed to get things back to the way they were before. There's an episode in series two, the episode where he's got the old folks over from the home. He's invited one lady, Mrs. Beardsmore, and doesn't actually realise that she's organised it as an outing, and then suddenly they've got uh, eight old ladies in the, the household. The way that he, for example, talks to Paul for the crime of having used the back door... There are points in that, I think that there's one specific point where he's actually talking about how, oh, I've known Howard and Hilda for, for so many years before they ever used the back door. There's a point at which he's actually got a sort of manic look in his eye. He's, he's almost, actually, he's the almost, first time he meets Paul, he freaks out. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying he's borderline psychotic or anything like that, but you actually think that there's a point, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to use any slang terminology that would upset people, but there, there's a point, particularly in that scene, when, he, when he's getting at, at Paul, for the crime of using the back door, where I think this guy is unstable. And we sort well, of when we get to the end of 
yes, series two, they're not hand waving that too much. My biggest complaint about Martin is the way that he treats Anne, and I don't have to. I don't have to delve too far to come up with examples. For instance, in the final episode of series two, when Anne goes to the Christmas party, Martin's on the phone to her next door, and he is just basically again trying to control Anne's behaviour and activities saying I've got the milk on I'm making the oval tea, and we'll be going up to bed in 15 minutes and so on and so on the way that he talks to her for instance when she's gone to Boulogne for the day and she's got stranded there these are all patterns of behaviour which suggest that he is somebody who doesn't even suggest it you can see it for yourself he's engaging in abusive controlling behaviour I don't mean physically abusive the thing is but it doesn't work and I can't imagine it's ever entirely. Uh, well, I, that, that's not really. Yeah, but that's not. That's not really the issue. The, the well, it works or not is a different thing, and that's to Anne's credit that she doesn't allow that to work. But nevertheless, he. I is don't know because to... the, the, there is a certain extent where the reaction you receive should tell you when to stop. Pretty much any time he does this, Anne's going to blow up at him every single time. It's it almost like he's having to find his own limits. And he can only find the limits in the marriage when Anne gets angry at him. But he shouldn't really put her in that position where she has to continually, because he doesn't stop him from trying it again and again. And what, what I'm really getting at here is that he comes across to me as a controlling, uh, manipulative husband. There's no suggestion that he, he would ever raise his hand or anything like that, but... It's all verbal, and even sometimes it's just the fact that he's sometimes he's he's not talking. It's a, these are all aspects of abusive, controlling behaviour, and that's why I don't like Martin because I see I've witnessed this kind of behaviour up close myself, and I see it in him, and that's why I don't take to him at all. And everybody else in the the lineup, they've all got their own little sort of character defects and so on, but I just cannot shake off this idea that Martin is. An unpleasant character. I know that sometimes there are occasions, there's one or two occasions when I do feel sorry for him, but it doesn't happen very often, I have to say. I think there's a crucial difference, though, the fact that he's married to a strong-willed and intelligent woman. And we do find out... Do we find out in series two why Anne and Martin are together? That his At one point, his natural tendencies were exactly the right thing that Anne needed. Yes, this is true. Yeah, Paul does actually ask her, says, how did you two ever get together? And she does say that she was a little bit sort of lost and, and he came along and, and brought order into her life and security at exactly the point when she needed it. But the point that I want to emphasise again is that it should not come down to Anne's personality as to how Martin behaves. So you could say, yeah, Anne always fights back, but she shouldn't have to fight back, is what I'm saying. It's possibly a bad side effect of the realistic Anne versus the unrealistic Martin. I think, presumably, in the minds of Esmond and Larby and Richard Bryars, I don't think Martin's supposed to be necessarily, say, a worse person than George Mannering. George Mannering is incredibly pompous and selfish, but there are frequently times when he's shown to be quite honourable and loyal, and on a few occasions will actually take a loss of status in the best interests of his friends. Now, this is an interesting point, actually, because this is not really something that... I can't really go into too much detail about this yet, because I haven't seen beyond the end of Series 2. But have you ever seen the Comedy Connections 
documentary about Everett Crease and Suckles, you'll hear Sidney Lotterby say that he was effectively removed as producer-director at the end of Series 2, and he was very polite and very tactful in the way that he said it, but he was clearly intimating that that came as a result of the wishes of Richard Pryor's because he didn't feel that Sidney Lotterby was giving him enough direction for his character. So I am interested to see in Series 3 whether there's any kind of change to Martin's personality or his behaviour. You can you can tell me this straight away because you've seen them. But... I think he gets a bit broad. I think everything gets a little bit more sitcommy and broader. There's a really interesting bit which you come to. There is one episode that is really dreadful at least by the standards of everything else that's around it, there's a dream sequence. <laughs> hey, always a good sign in this account. <laughs> but when we examine this dream sequence, there is one word which, if you want to examine it, would reveal a lot of things about Martin's state of mind, the root of his neuroses, and his relationship with Howard. And it's never examined. It's just kind of like casually mentioned. What? Hang on a minute. Back up here. And it, yeah. So when we get to that, it'll be interesting. Well, but the dream like sequence come... itself is pretty dreadful. <laughs> I can't think of any good dream sequence in a sitcom. They're usually, I mean, they're not necessarily always jumping the shark moments, but but quite often they will be. Oh, here comes the filler episode where we didn't really know what to do this week, so we're just going to arse around <laughs> in the complete fantasy land and then everything will go back to normal. I often associate those episodes, like I said to you the other week, about episodes where the Golden Girls sit down with their cheesecake and say, do you remember what it was like you know, a few years ago when this happened? I sort of associate dream sequence episodes with Good Friday as well. <laughs> sort of the throwaway episode when something is happening and we know that people aren't going to be watching is going to be opposite Game 7 of the World Series or something like that. But let's find ourselves right at the start. January 84 is when the, the series began and Paul arrives. At first we don't know too much about Paul. I mean we actually we don't really know a great deal about Paul really until series 2 because there's a, you know, there's a big revelation in series 2 which we'll come on to. Paul is very suave. Paul is very accomplished. He's running this hairdresser's salon in the town and Straight away, uh, Martin takes a dislike to him. He sees him as... Because because Martin is somebody who... He's not necessarily the best at everything that he touches, but he's managed to sort of engineer a situation where quite often he is the, the big fish in the small pond and then suddenly sees uh, Paul coming in as a threat because he's got wider experience. He was at Cambridge. He's been in the army. So, yeah, you could understand why Martin will not take them too well. And it does take a little while for the the ice to break between them. Actually, I want to bring up another comparison with butterflies. Because this whole thing of the unresolved sexual tension between Anne and Paul, and the I don't know if it ever gets resolved sexual tension between Rhea Parkinson and Leonard. One of the big differences there is Leonard, I think he has a nicer house. Does he have a chauffeur? Yes, he does. Big car and all this kind of stuff. Paul... There's another reason why Martin should not be angry at Paul, even though Paul represents... There's a class thing and there's a sort of political thing. Paul is from a higher social class and almost therefore is probably to the left of Martin in his political views. He represents a modernity that's quite upsetting to somebody like Martin. 
But Paul lives next door. Paul is not too good for the suburbs. He moves in next door and he tries to be friends with everybody in the neighbourhood. He will go down the pub and have a drink with Howard and Hilda and ask them how they're doing. He does not represent a lofty, better life. He admits himself he'll probably move out of the class, but when he's there, he makes the best of it. Does not sort of... I, I'm sorry, I can't come to the pub. I have far too important things to do. I went to Cambridge, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, I can see how Paul could be, on occasion, unwittingly irritating. The, the fact that he, he always seems to have a friend somewhere who knows this or knows that or can help us with this or help us with that and so on and after a while yeah that could grate in your nerves i can understand that paul's not perfect by any means but martin is small town and martin's very sort of parochial in his outlook i don't know actually there's no point that i can think of in another series where they ever actually discuss politics but one comment that martin made which surprised me a little bit but there may not be a lot to it. It's when they've had the party at Paul's house and then he's ended up meeting the psychiatrist. And Martin says, with regard to Paul's friends, he says, oh, they're all a bit daily telegraph, aren't they? <laughs> that comment surprised me a little bit because I would have thought that he would have said something like they're all a bit guardian. Yes. But What was the daily telegraph like in the mid-80s? Uh, telegraph... In the 80s, I mean, it's still right of centre... But I think, actually, it was a little bit more straight-laced than it is now. Telegraph nowadays is a bit more modern. Telegraph was actually the first British newspaper on the internet back in 1994. It wasn't The Guardian, as people often think. So, yeah, The Telegraph these days is a bit broader in its outlook. But, yeah, back then it would be... Well, how was it Jim Hacker described it? He said that the Morning Star is read by people who think that we should be run by another country, and The Telegraph is read by people who think it is. So, yeah, I wouldn't have necessarily said that Martin was a, a Telegraph reader. No, I don't think there's any capital P politics, but there is a sense that Paul represents a certain kind of modernity. Probably had a good 60s. Well, I suspect, and this is not necessarily a compliment towards Paul, but it's more just an opinion. I think that Paul actually would be fairly political neutral because he would know that it was to his advantage. Bear in mind that Paul seems to have an absolutely immense social network. If Paul was on Facebook today, he would have 3,000 facebook friends he seems to just know people left right and center so i don't actually think that he would be i don't think he'd be an ideologue by, by but he's a social liberal yes but i think also he, he has women around he tries at one point to convince martin that he's gay yes and i don't know if he thinks it's genuinely funny or he really wants to see how martin's going to react well for the first couple of episodes i actually thought that that was going to be part of paul's character i thought he actually was going to be gay I don't know why I just sort of got that impression early on that maybe he was. But it becomes apparent later on, of course, that that's not the case. Whereas Martin, I think you'd probably describe as fairly sort of Daily Mail, would you say? Mm. Uh, I, I mentioned Martin probably had a quite a working class upbringing and has got himself to this lower to middle to upper middle class lifestyle and has really achieved something for himself as far as he's concerned and he has friends and he has people who aren't going to run away from him like they did when he was a child and so on the one hand it's understandable that he resents Paul but Paul is not going to take those things away from him Paul wants to muck in I think I think Paul and Martin both need the close because Paul drifts through life and isn't everybody's a mate of his but 
very rarely do we ever see anybody... I don't, do we actually ever see anybody visit Paul twice? He never has the same girlfriend twice. Nobody ever actually pops round to see him. No, not that I can, not that I can recall. Not that I can so recall. for him, this is a very necessary thing to belong to a community. And it's necessary to Martin for different reasons. Now, this is interesting because I do remember once hearing Richard Bryars interviewed. I think actually, I think he said this more than once. He didn't like Tom Good in The Good Life. He thought that Tom was a selfish character by going on this self-sufficiency course and depriving Barbara of a lot of the uh, the luxuries that they'd had previously when he was working in the office with Jerry. Whereas Martin, as you say, Martin is someone who is not a dreamer. He he's he's actually in many ways he's quite opposite to Tom Good. Very much got his feet on the ground. I think he yeah, Tom, Tom Good is as bad as you think Martin is. I, I think I can, if, we I can... took, if we took their respective wives away, I think Tom would spin out of control and eventually destroy the world. I guess Martin I can, I can would just yeah. I can understand that. Yeah, I mean uh, Tom is a sort of airy fairy head in the clouds. I mean, in in some ways he's quite a sweet character because he's he's not restrained by small-minded sort of traditional thinking. He he's quite happy just to try something. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But he doesn't necessarily always appreciate the impact that that has on Barbara and other people around him. Whereas I'll certainly accept that Martin is in love with Anne. I can certainly accept that. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, and um, Anne I think, frequently I think that Martin, looks at Martin with unvarnished affection. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen in the episode, for example, when Anne is... Actually, I want to bring in something my wife said when I was talking about the comparisons between butterflies and ever-decreasing circles and the whole frustration. She said, Anne is frustrated by her husband, not her marriage. Yes, I can. Yeah, I can understand that. I can understand that. I she mean, likes being married to Martin. She just wishes Martin was a better Martin, and she knows that she's she's obviously clearly at certain points in her life seen a better Martin. Yeah. Also, the difference between that. her and Rhea Parkinson. I get the feeling. Well, Rhea Parkinson. If you look at the age of her children, it looks like she hasn't really had much of a life between school and marriage. Anne has gone out into the world, got her fingers burned, has had Martin put her back into herself. Again, Anne, I think Anne needs the community as well. It's just we're now joining the marriage at the point at which it's beginning to confine her. There are a couple of points where she looks really happy. The holiday episode, the glockenspiel, when she brings out the bottle, for a while she's, she's really happy to be going through the ritual of getting out the traditional bottle they all drink from when they book their holidays. And it's only when they start reminding her that they're going to do all the same things again, that it starts to grate on her. But initially, you watch there, and she's quite pleased to be playing the housewife. Because clearly, at some point in her life, that's been something... She's not been either. She's not been a strong, independent woman, and she's not been a housewife. She's chosen at some point. She actually has a role. I'm guessing her life fell apart, and she was directionless. She found a direction, and, well, it's the 1980s. You can have it all. And she's realising that. Funnily enough, the episode entitled Housework, she is really bogged down with the the, the day-to-day monotony, just, you know, doing the housework and so on. And then she suggests that she's going to go out to work and possibly go out to work at Paul's salon and so on. Do you know, the entire episode, I was sitting there saying, why doesn't she do something like 
an open university course. That'd be perfect, wouldn't it? We wouldn't. That'd be exactly the kind of thing that, that she could excel at, and she had flexibility with, and so on. And then, right at the end of the episode, there you are. But open also, university course. Who comes Hi. up with the idea? I was, yeah, it was Martin. It was Martin that came up with it. That's Again, right. that's one of his night characteristics. Yeah, he's got his practical side. I think there is whereas... something about him. For a while, he doesn't really want to recognise how frustrated Anne is. But if he finds a way out, he'll go for it. Okay, part of it he will benefit from it because it will keep Anne at home. Well, but he's come yeah. up with a solution to the problem that I think a lesser husband wouldn't. He's had doesn't to, want his wife he, getting an education. Martin's fine with that. He he gets really proud. He 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 sees it as again. He kind of spoils it by seeing it as scoring a point off Paul. Well, yeah, oh, exactly. Be, oh, and that's it's series three where he says something like, "It'd be unusual living next door to somebody else who has a degree." Yeah, I mean that is that. What is his motivation there? Is his is his principal motivation and well being, or is it getting one over on Paul? We don't Both. Know. I think no. I think he wants it all. Yeah, but series one is a, is a little bit odd in that it's only got five episodes. Now, here's um, a weird thing. In the Comedy Connections, Peter Egan at one point says he recalls there being a script that series one ended with Anne and Paul running away together. That seems like a really bad idea. Now, because I actually I said to you beforehand that I was going to introduce something into the conversation, so this would be a good point to do this. I remember you saying to me, quite some time ago, before I'd ever seen Ever Decrease in Circles, that you once saw a post uh, on the internet about somebody who was suggesting uh, an idea for a revival of Ever Decrease in Circles, but it would have hinged on Anne having been, as you said, having been unfaithful to Martin. And from my point of view, having seen two series of this, I do not envisage that happening. I'd be, no, I'd it's be interesting if that actually turns out to be the case. The, the simmering tension is always there, but it's interesting how quickly it becomes a shared joke between Paul and Anne. There's quite a few occasions where they're looking at each other and it's not so much a case of, he'll never know, let's tear each other's clothes off. They're looking at each other thinking, oh, maybe in another life, what would it have been like if I'd met you before Martin did? As I said, very quickly, it just becomes a joke. We're saying, you know, why are you coming round to my house with all your clothes on? And one of the episodes where he seems to make the most forward remarks. He's, he's got a girl upstairs. It's a gag. It's partially a way of dealing with it and Paul has finally found something he can't have. Something he can't just... Well, let's skip forward a little bit. Well, yeah, I was going to say... I can't remember if it's series a... three or four, but let's get this out of the way. There is an episode where Howard and Hilda accuse Paul of having an affair with Anne. And Paul gets angry. Paul gets so genuinely angry that Howard puts his fists up because he thinks it's going to turn into a fight. And I think that's a revealing moment. He doesn't even want people to think that he's cuckolded Martin. He doesn't even want to make a joke about it. Yeah, and I could, I could well imagine that if, if Paul was even just an ever so slightly different character, not not fundamentally different, I can imagine actually that he would go along with the idea. Like I said right at the outset, he, he will deliberately sometimes press Martin's buttons, but he's not the kind of character who would plant that idea in his head. But yeah, less scrupulous individuals would. And it's not that far removed from Paul's personality to imagine uh, somebody like him doing that. So I, but, don't, I don't know if this script existed. Well, actually, we have to Stop! 
the mighty roar of London's traffic and brings something up that is missing from the comedy connections and seems to be a really vital part of the story. A play called Hiccups, which I think was on in the 70s in the Thorndike Theatre, Leatherhead. I have that much written down. Martin, played by Sam Kelly, and Susan Derrick. I'm not really familiar with Susan Derrick's work. We don't know who played Paul, but as I understand it, Paul in the play was much younger. So it's a different, it's a generational tension. Howard, played by Peter Baldwin. I remember Derrick, married to Mavis in Coronation Street. So I imagine he probably played it quite similar. And here's the reason that this, I don't understand how they missed this. Hilda's played by Geraldine Newman. Who played Hilda in the TV series and is interviewed for Comedy Connections, and this never comes up. I, I'm guessing it doesn't fit with a tidy little narrative. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like something that would probably be considered as part of the program, be it the 30 minute or the 40 minute version, but ultimately just time constraints would have been dropped. Hang on a minute, hang on, but with this, like, wait, the show existed, fully formed. <laughs> Roughly ten years earlier, you don't think that's worth mentioning at all? It's, it's, because yeah, you... it's, it's, <laughs> it's worth mentioning, but it's not going to have too much of an impact than what follows. As in, for example, if you're talking about... In other words, Dan, it doesn't fit the tidy little narrative that documentaries like now. Well, there's they a always, reason... They always like react like, it's 1977 and punk overthrows prog, like it happened <laughs> that neatly. No, it didn't. I think the reason that... The one example that you always hear mentioned is Rising Damp and the fact that that started as a stage show. I suspect that the reason why that always gets mentioned in documentaries about it is because that had a very neat and tidy storyline with a beginning, a middle and an end, which then didn't occur in the TV series, but did occur at the end of the film. We were just talking about the Rising Damp film the other day. And so when you then have the story of Rising Damp and you get to the end of the film, it automatically takes you all the way back to the, the stage show. Whereas, if the stage show was simply an embryonic version of ever Decreasing Circles, I, yeah, I can sort of see why it wouldn't make the final cut in the documentary. But yes, it would have been nice to, to have heard a bit about it. And no, I think uh, it's crazy not mentioning it. Well, I mean, they can, they can mention it's passing. It's not, it's not a... That's like making a documentary about the Beatles and not mentioning the Quarry Men. And then they went to Germany. Hang What? Hang on. <laughs> well, okay, we should... Um... But I'd like to know how Hiccups ends. Well, yeah. That, if anybody that's, that's has it. any more information and... That's a crucial bit, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to. I'm almost I'm wondering, gonna... does that end with them running away together? Is that where okay. Peter Sh- Regan got we? this idea? Well, I tell you what, we won't get the answer, even if I was to do it right now, I don't think I'd get the answer that quickly. But what we'll do is, dear listeners, we will tweet Sam Kelly, because Sam Kelly is a prolific tweeter. So we will tweet Sam Kelly, and we will ask him. We will ask him, first of all, who was it played Paul? And we'll ask him, was it a nice sort of neat ending in the show? And if Sam Kelly gets back to us, then we will include that in a future episode. <laughs> and just, just to, Sorry, I've just, just, just got this sudden idea of... of... <laughs> Of an amazing ending. It would be, it ends with Anne frustrated. It's like, maybe you need somebody to talk to. And there's a knock at the door. And there's a nice young man in a fancy waistcoat and riding boots. Little intertextuality there. <laughs> Won't say any more okay, for fear I'm, of spoilers of another show. But <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw, throw something in here. I don't think that... Certainly as far as being a couple is concerned, as in Anne and Paul sort of wondering what if and apparently the universe and so on, I don't think that Anne and Paul would have made a good couple at all. I'm not sure anybody and Paul 
would make a good couple. There's a, there's a crucial episode in series yes. two that we're going to touch on shortly called A Married Man, but I think that for the reason that we, we find out in there, the fact that Paul is something of a butterfly, and that he, for whatever reason, doesn't like to settle down. And as soon as he looks as if he's going to excel at something and then be in that particular place and location and job and whatever it may be from then on, that's when suddenly he presses a reset button. Yeah, and it's, I don't it's think that, that because would... he's never had to really try. And I don't think that would have worked for Anne. Based upon what she said about how she met Martin, I don't think that would work for her at all. However, what I'll throw in here is... I could envisage that on one single occasion, I could envisage that Anne and Paul could actually have had like a little dalliance. And then that would have been something that would have been effectively a secret between the two of them from then on. And something where Anne sort of thought that she needed to tell Martin that. But that could have gone on and on and on. That could have gone on for multiple series. And eventually she would have told him that there had been a single instance between the two of them. That doesn't seem far-fetched to me. I could I could believe that that could have been the case. And then you just sort of wonder what would, what would have been the outcome to that? What would have been Martin's reaction? We will see something... Well, we'll see a couple of things highly relevant to this later on. So... Well, series one, like we said, we don't know if there is a, a sort of a missing episode where... <laughs> and Paul I'm almost wondering if the first planned, episode of but... Series 2 is the last episode of Series 1, really. One of the things we mentioned in Mulberry is how episodes tend to end and then the next episode just follows straight on. There's not a sense of the reset button's been pressed between episodes. They remember what happened and talk about it. Series 2, Episode 1, we find out this thing about Martin that when he was at school... Him and his friends, he would organise all the games. And he built up quite a little gang around him. And then a new boy came to school. And he's very smooth and charming. And they all stopped going to Martin's end of the playground. This is mentioned in Series 1, Episode 1. But not in a way that we'd really know what he was talking about. He just starts talking to himself briefly. About, you know, we were having such fun. I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's talking about it in those vague terms and it doesn't pay off until the next series. I'm wondering if they had a really, really tight series Bible telling you exactly everything you need to know. There's even the thing of the Series 2 Christmas special talking about Rex Tynan. We will see Rex Tynan at the beginning of Series 3 and they will mention what Rex Tynan did to him the previous Christmas. And Rex Tynan well, will do worse things than that in Series uh, 3. And also, um, of course, well, Rex, Rex Tynan is a flash, in love with himself, sleazy guy. Who do you think plays him? Well, this is a little bit unfair because I've actually... You asked me that question yesterday. I didn't have an answer and I happened to be staring at the cast list. Did, did, you, did you know, though? Did you, it automatically knew who, who's the Rex No, Tynan I didn't. No, I really, I, oh. I, it actually, it, fl- it fleetingly went through my head, but I then dismissed it and I should have focused on that and it was Peter Blake. And I think actually Brody, I think, mentioned to us before that he played that kind of character. It never decreased in circles. I think she mentioned that to us a wee while back, so... Yeah, so uh, we've got quite a pivotal episode coming up here. The episode in, in, by the way, second episode of Series 2 is a particularly good episode, uh, the cricket match. It's an interesting one because it... I think this is the worst thing Paul ever does. 
I think this is where Paul's occasional blindness to the effect he's having is a okay, massive well, character well, flaw. We should, yeah, yeah let, well, we should explain, because the thing is that this one sort of sends you in twists and turns, because there's more than one occasion when I thought, oh, I can see where this is going, and actually it, it then went down on a talent of route. But at first you think, oh, Paul's going to get his way into the cricket team, and he's going to show up. Martin uh, is going to be bloody good, and it's I'm just going to hack off Martin. But as things turn out, although that is the, the case to an extent, it doesn't happen quite as straightforwardly as that. Yeah, so one of the players gets accidentally injured, funnily enough, from a ball batted by Paul. And so Paul ends up in the team, and as you'd expect, because he's formerly played cricket at Cambridge, yeah, of course, he's bloody good at it. And he ends up winning the match for Martin's team, not playing against them. So he's, you know, they're all supposed to be together and happy and what have you. But it backfires on, on Martin. And it's one of the, the few times when I do feel sorry for Martin because, as Martin says, he didn't want Paul on the team, of course. He's found Paul suddenly in the team and then he himself is accused of being a cheat for having supposedly brought in this very accomplished player who they've never seen before. Paul shouldn't have done it. Paul should have realised. Local neighbourhood cricket league. And he was a Cambridge Blue who played at Lords. He should have realised that this would be stupid me playing because it's not even an arrogant thing to think. I'm just going to stomp these guys into the ground. Paul should have realised there and then what was happening. And no. Bad Paul. (laughs) However, Paul is suddenly going to be the centre of attention for a very different reason in the following episode because we discover Paul is invited to dinner party with Martin Lann, Howard and Hilda brings his girlfriend with him and then suddenly, knock at the door who is it? It's Mrs Ryman and she is still married to Paul but she is asking for a divorce, she's just in the area for that specific reason and it leads to first of all, we've got a bit of a farcical situation We find uh, we see Paul actually botch something Yes. Because he does not handle getting his girlfriend home very well. And she is really upset and angry. And I guess it indicates maybe a little bit of neediness on Paul's part. Get her out. Maybe she wants me back. Maybe my wife wants me back. Well, he does say afterwards that he himself wants the marriage to continue. But we've already heard Paul's wife explain to Anne one of the reasons why she wants a divorce from him is that He's got this character trait about never wanting to to settle down and never wanting to actually excel at something going above and beyond his capabilities. But we do get from her also the idea that Paul does not actually have to work to succeed. She taught him to be a hairdresser and he picked it up instantly, what it took her years to develop. And so you get the idea that's why Paul is trying to look for something that will be difficult for him. And when we get later on, Paul will even give up being a hairdresser because he's too good at it. Or we know that that's why he's doing it. He might give some other reason. I haven't rewatched that episode yet. But he's looking for something that would be a challenge and he's never found anything. Everything just falls into his lap. Well, not quite everything because you yourself, you were just about to comment on the episode about the annual snooker competition. Yes. This one's interesting in the light of the cricket episode and it's also... It's hard to tell if Paul's being mean here or trying very hard not to be mean. The only time... Am I getting ahead of myself? This is the only time Paul actually tries to psych Martin out with how brilliant he is. 
And it's very interesting why he's doing this. Should we go through this plot point by plot point? Because this is also the examination of Howard's mm-hmm. personality. Yeah. So th- this is this is the annual snooker competition, which Martin is, as is his way, he's sort of half organising and half participating in. And it's something that he's never won. Uh, and we find out that there's a particular person who he's decided not to invite on this particular occasion who is uh, a previous champion. But he's got odd numbers. That's something about Martin. He really hates odd numbers. Cannot abide odd numbers. Thinks that they're, they're very messy. But eventually has his arm twisted into inviting Paul. And straight away that puts Martin into a depressive funk. Because he thinks he knows what's going to happen. Paul's going to beat him. Because he always beats him. And he always does well at everything that he touches. So Anne actually asks Paul outright to throw the match. And I thought that that was going to be the clear plot development. I thought that he was going to throw the match and then Martin was going to find out that he threw the match. But actually Martin never finds out that Paul's thrown the game. And we find out that Paul didn't throw the game. Oh yeah, of course, that's right. Because as he says afterwards, he's only ever played twice. And that's the <laughs> so, thing. The one time that he tries to psych Martin out with his brilliance, when he's asking, has anybody ever got 147 here? <laughs> and he's got a proper cue and he's borrowed the outfit. He's got, yes. He's got yeah. the waistcoat and the bow tie and everything. And he knows he's going to fall flat on his face. Now, is it that he's going to lose to Martin and wants to enjoy a little schadenfreude or it's a self-deprecating thing. He wants to build himself up because he knows it's all it's, it's going to end up with pie on his face. And he quite likes the idea of being the mythical Paul and breaking it. I've, yeah, I think that, again, I think he's just amusing himself. He knows what buttons to press to get Martin upset, but he's also got the added bonus. And, of time. course, we're back to him doing something he's not good at, finally mm-hmm. doing something that's a bit yeah. of a challenge. Yeah. So he's got the added bonus this time that he knows that by pressing Martin's buttons, he's not going to run the risk of upsetting Anne, which he obviously doesn't want to do because he is in control of the, the situation. He knows what the outcome is going to be before he begins. But as you say, this unexpectedly, this suddenly becomes about Howard. That's fantastic, isn't it? Really, that's that is great writing. It is you, the, you, you bring this... the tension between the two main characters to a peak, and it's not really about them. Yeah, yeah you've got this cool. almost this throwaway sort of subplot about Howard getting a job interview, and then the, the funny thing is, that, yeah, what's so good about that is that he's asked then later on. He said, "How the interview going?" He says, "Oh, really well." Then I think Anne says to him, "Also, you you confident about getting the job?" He says, "Oh, I didn't get the job." But the interview itself went very well. So you almost think, he, well, he's okay about it then. But it's only a little bit later on, passing remark that the referee makes to him, that is the straw that breaks the camel's back, then suddenly it tips him over the edge. And you, do, you, you really don't see it coming because you think actually that he's just laid back, Howard, as he always is, and just happy to just let life pass him by. But yeah, it, it gets to him. And, and we see Martin being insufferable when he thinks he's going to win finally. He becomes the person he thinks Paul is. And even then, all the way through it, Anne is really happy for Martin. Again, she keeps looking at him with this adoration. She's glad that he's going to have this little trophy. He's going to win, finally. She's pleased. I don't think she really picks up on how horrible Martin is being. And it's it's interesting, actually, that it's an incidental character who tips Howard over the edge so that... You don't misread the situation. You don't suddenly think, oh, there's some underlying tension between Howard and Martin. It's interesting because it's so dramatic as a scene. We even get a little echo in it because 
when Paul makes a fault when he's playing with Martin, and Martin goes, that's far away, put him up, put him up. And we get the echo because <laughs> Howard says that, it's menacing. But he's wildly overplaying it. Stanley Labor is wildly overacting, not problematically. Overacting is legitimate. It's a legitimate device. I once saw an interview with Orson Welles, who said, ham acting is not overacting, it's false acting. It is, I am acting. And he said, if you want an example of overacting, James Cagney. You cannot get away in real life acting the way James Cagney acts in films. But it's brilliant. Yes. It is how Howard would react under those circumstances. It's interesting. He's, he's, not, he's not himself. He's yeah. not acting as himself. It's interesting how scary he is, though. Yes. I, and of well, course, throughout yeah. the 70s, Stanley Labor was generally henchman number one in things like The Sweeney and Van der Valk and stuff like that. He was, the, he was the rough, tough guy. Interestingly, Peter Egan also, most of the things I've seen him in, he's playing generally unpleasant characters. Magnus Pym in A Perfect Spy, who is charming but unpleasant. George Hogarth in Big Breadwinner Hog, who is just a monster. The movie version of Toby Mears in the Callan film. And again, he's an immature, unpleasant sadist who thinks he's charming. Yeah, it, it all just sort of fits with the idea that as laid back as Howard is, and like I said right at the outset, I'd, yeah, I very much like Howard and Hilda. I think they're a lovely uh, couple. I think they're lovely people. But it's only so far that you can push somebody. And yeah, of course, at some point, if if it's just a culmination of just too many things going wrong all at once. Yeah, of course he's suddenly going to crack. And thankfully, he doesn't undergo some sort of permanent sort of personality change. The fact that he had that snooker match that he could play there and then and win suddenly put him back on course, so to speak. So, Actually, we yeah, do it... need to flip back to the relationship between Paul and Martin because when Anne is asking Paul to throw the match, Paul says something very, very revealing when... And says to Paul, you, know, you do tend to beat him. He says, I've never competed with him. He beats himself. That's Paul's view of his relationship with Martin. He is, as far as he can see, he's not in the competition, despite what he did at the cricket match. Again, Paul is kind of blind to the effect he's having. We've got to mention special mention of Penelope Wilton's reaction to uh, Geraldine Newman's as Hilda. You should have seen what Howard did to me in the car park. It's a beautiful... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then it ends on a really, really, really weak joke. The trophy's tiny. Ho, ho, ho. Roll cr Actually, most of these episodes end on, sometimes don't even really end on much of a joke at all. Well, yes. I've, I've, yeah, that's right. One episode where I was a little bit surprised by the ending. First of all, perhaps unusually for a typical... VT and studio film outside, multi-camera, studio audience, sitcom, you don't have any applause at the end of it, which a lot of the sitcoms of that particular era either have applause all the way through or at least have a smattering of applause and eventually it fades out to the theme tune. This has no audience applause at all. And the episode at the beginning of series two, when Martin has taken the ladies out from the retirement home, that ends on a little bit of a downer because I was sort of expecting at least one of the ladies to say, oh, Paul wasn't the star for me, it was yourself. But actually there's a twist there and she says, oh, I like that Howard. And it's sort of, yeah, it leaves That's Martin cold. even more deflated than he, than he already was. But yeah, it's interesting that it, it doesn't always... I don't know, it's part of that to... kind of literate 
style they're going for, almost. But again, episodes tend to follow on from one another. Very tight continuity references. We don't get a Mr. Jones situation where somebody has a teddy bear in the next episode. They, they would never think of having a teddy bear. But we, we'll get to the theme music, which is by Shostakovich. Not I hasten to add, especially written by Shostakovich for the BBC. <laughs> Those opening titles are already telling you this is not Whoops My Laugh Track. Yes, there was, there was something very, very subtly and slightly disconcerting about that theme and the imagery that sort of just clues you in that this is not... Well, for, for example, take the, the opening title to The Good Life. And I know that they're then spoofed in The Young Ones as sort of supposedly archetypal twee Terry and June style sitcom titles, but they are very sort of cosy and nice little tune, little sort of Winnie Hazelhurst uh, composition, and into the show and, and there you are. Whereas, yeah, this, this sort of gives off signals straight away that there's... Yeah, I'm wondering how much this is Sidney comfortable as producer-director, because when Harold Snowd takes over... It does get more sitcommy. Apart from well, thinking, well maybe to, just I'm Desmond and Larby are now playing out their concept. It's good sitcom, but it's not quite up there with the. I'm, but I'm almost wondering if, because there's been a change of producer, it's kind of like, yeah, come on, give us 25 minutes of laughs rather than okay, I want to see a little bit of development here. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see episodes from season three and four because yeah, I'm interested to see how this. Not necessarily develops, but just how it changes. And as you say, you, you said that it is a little bit more broad and uh, a little bit less of. Would you say was that is that is that a fair? Uh, yeah. Assumption. I mean, it might there? be a change that they have to make anyway, because otherwise, another two series in that style might wear thin. And it's not that it becomes trousers down around the ankles. The Vicar's walking up the drive. It doesn't get... It just seems to be a bit more sitcom but there's any number of reasons why that might have happened. I wouldn't spoil it by saying what it is, but there is one particular show which we will be discussing in a future episode where you've mentioned to me before about the uh, the final series just sort of turning into almost like a sort of a self-parody, just characters parroting catchphrases and, and, and not much more, which is odd because it's a series which actually is above average, is not actually a standard farcical sitcom. So yeah, these things those can happen. And of course there's the uh, the situation with the incidental music and loving memory. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, where things like this are always sort of fascinating to me. I, I like to see the development of a show over time. I'm interested to see I even spot like they're not overt, but there are subtle differences in the very first series of I Being Served, which is playing out just now on BBC two. Fast forward to say series eight, nine, ten. Although you've still got same fundamentals, the same, if not exactly the same cast members, you've still got effectively the same characters and the same scenario, but things are just ever so slightly broader. The elbows are just pushing things out further and further, and certain plots are getting more and more outrageous and ultimately ridiculous. And uh, yeah, I mean there are even occasions of certain sitcoms which. Oh, undergo quite a fundamental alteration uh, the longer they go on. Series 2 concludes with... Well, can we just get on to boredom? Uh, yes, because we, we touched on that a little bit earlier. Yeah, there's, there's a few interesting detail. things in here. Just looking at my notes, when Anne is describing how she ended up with Martin, and she says, wrong job, wrong man. 
which is where she was before she met Martin, do you think that maybe Martin isn't Anne's first husband? That'd be interesting. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. And then we then we get Geraldine Newman doing an old Joyce Grenfell routine. <laughs> of hobbies, yeah. uh, hobbies, things you can do around the home. Let's, let's give her a few minutes to show what she's been reacting too much. I had one or two funny lines. Let's give her a few minutes being hilarious. It's nice to see also Anne's reaction because you know at some point that Anne's going to twig what yeah. the F is going on here, but you're just interested to see at what point. At what point is this going to become so overt that she... She thinks, okay, I think I know what's going on here. Even before we've then got Martin saying hello, Hilda, uh, before he's even entered the room. (laughs) And we actually um, get to see Paul angry at Martin when he's talking about that, you know, do you want some salt and vinegar for that chip on your shoulder? And you you look and and the way Peter Egan's acting, he's he is simmering. He's angry at both of them because he's offered Anne a job and then he finds out Anne is going to take it only so she can irritate martin and and then martin comes in and freaks out at the possibility of her working there at the idea of her not working there because paul won't employ her for and he's had enough of both of them for the day yeah yes you you've got a bizarre situation where actually all of them are annoyed with each other mm. in a triangle so yes it makes for an uncomfortable situation where you know that this is not going to be resolved easily and ultimately, of course, it is, but it's going to take a few more conversations. But it's just that weird moment when Paul is cracking a fairly lame joke. Do you want some salt and vinegar for what for, for that chip on your shoulder? He's not smirking. He's saying it instead of standing up and bellowing. Well, yeah, we've got to remember as well that Paul, with his different life experiences and having been at Cambridge, having been in the army and so on, he's obviously learnt a few tricks. And... He, as his wife said, he doesn't use anywhere near his full potential. But obviously he knows various ways of being able to put people down or irritate people or whatever it may be in ways other than just shouting or waving his fists or whatever it may be. And yeah, he he chooses probably not to deploy those methods very often. But yeah, I don't doubt that he could, if he chose to, that he could really belittle somebody who crossed him. You were saying earlier about Martin's not a dreamer. We do find that bit where he confesses to Anne that he often thinks of them as Oberon and Titania. Yeah, that was interesting. That was interesting. Well, this, this flipping back, I can't remember what episode is in series one where they decide to play badminton. And of course, it all goes completely wrong because Martin starts obsessing about getting the net in the right place and it all falls apart and then later on, Paul finds the shuttlecock and says some kids must have knocked it over. And Anne's a little bit brought down by that because she realises that Paul thinks that Martin and Anne wouldn't do something fun like play badminton. Do you think somewhere along the line Martin changed? Martin became less fun? That basically as he got more settled in the close and had more things to organise, that's all he became. It's, it's just that feeling that, like, you know, they bring out, let's, let's get out the badminton stuff. As if that's one of the things well, they used yeah, to do. Yeah, I could, I could accept that if it wasn't for the fact that we already had that conversation between Anne and Paul about Martin coming in and bringing order where there was chaos. Yeah, he brings say, oh. order. He's a good organiser. But I, I imagine he was a good organiser and good at other things. Just the feeling that somewhere along the line, Martin changed and is not as much fun as he used to be 
that he used he organizing is always the number one thing he's good at but he would occasionally break off and now he doesn't yeah it's possible yes i mean again it's possibly something that might have been touched on in the original play who knows it's the kind of thing that we would most likely find out in little bits of conversations in later series and as i say when we see martin's organization he is passionate he's still he's full of enthusiasm for his organizational skills it's not a cold marriage it's just again she's not frustrated about being married to this horrible man she's frustrated about the man he's become can she get martin back to being the slightly more relaxed organizer he used to be yeah maybe maybe i still wonder though what when it comes to his incessant organizing what martin's motivation is and it it just comes down to whether i choose to be kind about it and put a sort of gloss on it or well, you know, we're in a good, we're in a really good place now because, of course, we've got we've got the episode where everybody suddenly acknowledges, yeah, that there is actually something. Well, everybody Martin. except for Martin. Well, yeah, it's it's not just a character flaw. He's he needs to see a psychiatrist. Yeah, so so Martin and go to Paul's for a party. Martin gets talking to a psychiatrist who very quickly identifies that there was something something amiss with Martin's personality. The fact that he's well, for a start, the fact that he's speaking so quickly and so obsessively about relatively little things and then yeah we get this this whole situation where martin's megalomania really gets to the peak here when he's he's actually arrogant enough to think that this qualified psychiatrist and forgive me i don't know what i don't know how long you have to study to become a psychiatrist but i'm guessing it's a fair few years I don't know if it's quite as much as a doctor of medicine, but I'm guessing that you know you could put in the hours and get the degrees and the qualifications and so on. Well, you get to write prescriptions, so I'm guessing it's it's doctor of medicine. Yeah, maybe so. So it could even be longer than the uh, doctor in the house guys, Robin Nedwell and so on. But yeah, the fact that Martin actually you have to let off twice as many firings. (laughs) But the fact that Martin actually thinks that he is being asked into the room with Anne for the psychiatrist to get Martin's second opinion. That that sort of tells me that, again, this is another one of these you know warning what? signs it's, where it's... I think that Martin is going beyond... Um... This is a bit of the beginning of the broadening of Martin, actually, though. I think earlier on he wouldn't have been quite that nuts, but he has. To, it's like, right, we we have to make him really nuts for this episode to pay off. That's why I think Martin's behaviour appears a little more unpleasant and more controlling because he's a sitcom character, has to be stepped up to be noticeable, to be comedic. I think they've sort of cranked up his neuroses a little. Because it doesn't, this, this, very strangely, this doesn't pay off. It, it ends on a really weak gag. And it never comes back. I don't think it ever comes back. Well, the only it's, it's which is strange. If somebody used to see a psychiatrist once, well, yeah, it's it, it's a shame because it it is actually referenced again right at the beginning of the next episode, which is a Christmas episode, but in a sort of a throwaway. Oh, he's emigrated now. Psychiatrist has emigrated, so it's almost like, well, that's not going to come back. That situation. Whereas, for example, the conclusion because we've got to remember also that episode is actually the end of series two. And then we've got a Christmas special that follows a fortnight later on. Whereas the end of series one is quite a sweet ending. But the end of this episode is, is really not because nothing's been resolved. Nothing's changed. And Martin, rather than realising how his behaviour was coming across, he's blaming it all on 
psychiatrist. He's just blown up at him, and he's just going to uh, say, oh, it's all, it's all his problem. I don't blame you, Anne. Don't blame anybody else. It's all his problem. And so, yeah, nothing is resolved at the end of that episode at all, and nothing's going to change about Martin's behaviour. The Christmas episode, end of series two, I have mixed feelings about this, because I've been, I think justifiably, for the reasons I've explained earlier on, I've been quite anti-Martin in our conversation today. In this episode, simultaneously, he gets my blood boiling, particularly the way that he's talking to Anne on the telephone. And the fact, and also just the fact that he's phoned Anne and is still trying to control her behaviour and her activities, even when he's not in the same room. On the flip side, I can't help but feel a little bit sorry for Martin, the fact that he's had his peaceful Christmas ruined and suddenly found himself in the house, his own house full of strangers. Particularly that scene when they're, they're all having breakfast and he's just sat at his own table surrounded by all this it's just this sheer noise and everybody else enjoying themselves and he's suddenly found himself in the situation which has been imposed upon him and again I mean you've got to put I mean you know Anne's obviously complicit in it but you've got to put the blame for this fairly firmly with Paul because Paul has been at the height of his sort of airy fairy (laughs) nature by inviting people down for Christmas and not actually knowing where he's going to put them there's a couple of interesting things. Well, I mean, Paul does try and make it up to Martin by giving him more work to do, which he now knows is the kind of thing that Martin likes. But there's there's one interesting thing that Martin is just, oh, Paul's friends, it's Paul's friends. And his attitude softens when he finds that one of Paul's friends is nice and prim and posh and middle class. And when he finds that woman in the kitchen, yeah, who is um... Martin's type of person... It's, again, with it's, we're talking yeah, about I, I, again, I think that this sociopolitical um, tension. Well, you know what? I'm saying sociopolitical. I think maybe I need to explain myself a bit. We're talking about made-up stuff, like it really happened, and I think this is a legitimate thing to do. But you kind of need to set your own rules, or explain what the rules are. Some of the stuff I've said. I don't think for a moment was in Esmond and Larby's mind, or or Richard Bryars, or any of the cast. But I still think you can talk about it because these characters have been written and acted in a way that they know what they're not doing. So it's kind of a case of looking at the spaces left and saying, I think that that space yeah. is filled with death. And I mean, it's the same. But there is always this risk that you just start. Well, yes, I don't think we're doing that. And I think that, I mean, that's the whole point of the podcast, why we're here, and the podcast itself is modelled on your traditional sort of roundtable book club. Although, what the hell would I know? Because I don't read fiction books. But you see what I mean? It's not like we're sitting here saying what they needed was to send Martin Bryce into space and have him meet up with Mrs. Noah. And that would have been a bloody good transition into series 17. Um, I like it. Well, (laughs) pitch it then. I mean, BBC likes to resurrect the the old sitcoms. Pitch it. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I don't know that anybody you have to recast yeah i was just gonna say i don't know anybody actually survives no i just suddenly got self-conscious about the way i was talking about this no i think i think it's permissible because you've got to immerse yourself in the subject and you've got to allow yourself just the freedom to run with yeah it because... it's just i'm not really heavily into this whole death of the author stuff where somebody says well that that's the way i see it and no i always like going back to the text and seeing if it's seeing if it's supported by the text or not also you know what i'm just 
Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? You know what the internet's full of? People over-examining popular culture because they're not clever enough to examine high culture. Actually, this is a really good place to end. I'm unashamedly a low-culture freak. That's fine. That is fine. It's not low culture. It's pop culture. <laughs> no, you haven't seen some of the DVDs I've got on my shelf. Well, yes. It, We're no, about to review the Whackers in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Eventually, yes. But what I mean is you get people putting these delicately constructed literary analysis with lots of socio-political historical context on something that was never meant to bear that weight. Trying to look clever because of it. <laughs> well, the thing is, well, we're not. We're ah, not. well, this is my decon, and it's always Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. Well, this is my deconstruction of a show that's meant for nine-year-olds. This is where we're actually going. Yeah. Well, I'm not authorized to speak on the subject of Doctor Who because I've never seen it. I'll repeat that, listeners. I've never watched Doctor Who. <laughs> so there you have it. I cannot comment on any Doctor Who related so look, matters. Before we get to the Wackers. Next time, we're going to talk about something that has a literary source. We're going to talk about something that is not in the Radio Times Guide to Comedy because it's not considered a comedy. It's considered to be a drama. It's always sold as a drama. I went to get the DVD and found that I put it in the drama section of my DVDs because I do actually organise them that way. You've got to be careful about this because we don't want our dear regular listeners thinking that we've gone all radio free on them. Yes, we have. Well, I haven't. We've gone third program. I haven't. No. Radio 3 is a modern invention (laughs) and it's far too (laughs) loose for me. It probably has... I will not be appearing on on any forthcoming edition of Nightwaves. So next time, it's going to be hardcore. Unless we don't feel like it, in which case we'll see you next time with the Wackers. Hang on a second. You need to clarify that because you can't have the last thing on the podcast saying the next time it's going to be hardcore because people may not realise what I'm not about. reaching down to the prurient, adolescent, sex-obsessed mindset of the 21st century. <laughs> people should know that that word has more than one meaning. Next time it is going to be hardcore. You know the score. Well, that's all very well. I'm quite happy to take part in this highfalutin conversation next time. And after that, we will be reviewing, hot off the network DVD presses, The Whackers, Way, which is a Vince Powell-offered prototype bread from 10 years previously, starring Ken Jones and Alison Stedman, described in the Radio Times Guide to Comedy as not a success, audiences grew tired of the incontinence jokes. So, plenty to look forward to there. Also, if you've missed any of the previous episodes of the Sitcom Club, this is the 13th sitcom that we've discussed. We've also uh, recorded a few special mailbag episodes as well. So, if you've missed any of those, just go to the website sitcomclub.com. You can subscribe to the feed there, either on iTunes, or you can put the XML feed straight into your preferred podcatcher. Obviously, you can always get in touch with us. We're on Twitter, at the Sitcom Club. And you can also email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. And yeah, let us know with any particular shows that you'd like us to talk about in the future, or just if you've got any recommendations for us, anything at all like that. And meantime, Ocho, you've been yourself. Hardcore! <laughs> I've been Mooncat, and this has been The Sitcom Club. <laughs>